Well, good evening. Uh, Jeff Fuller with you, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, hopeforvermont.org. And we certainly believe people's stories matter. And one with a great story is the one, the only, the living legend. It's Mark Gorbett. Mark, welcome in. <laughs> well, thanks, Jeff. That's a very warm welcome. Well, I've heard tremendous things about you. And uh, from my short time uh, visiting formerly Bethany Bible College, Kingswood University, when you were the president there, uh, I found most of those to be true. Some of the others, uh, I did not have time enough to get to know you, but I just want to begin with you served uh, in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. That's where my wife is from. She's actually from Sparta, just north of Grand Rapids. What is your affinity, affection for uh, Michigan? Well, I served there from 2000 to 2010. I was the district superintendent for what was then called the West Michigan District. And our kids really grew up in that area. We lived in the same house for 10 years in Caledonia, just on the south side of Grand Rapids, and had a lovely, amazing time there. Some great folks we got to work with and saw the Lord help us plant a few churches. And that was a, a lot of fun, too. Three of our children, now grown and married, have returned to that area. They all live within about 10 miles of where our home was there. So. And now you're part of the Crossroads District. This is in uh, central Indiana, and I just want to bring up the website here. It's crossroadsdistrict.org. Uh, you went there 2015 following a tenure at Bethany Bible College, now Kingswood University. Can you just share a little bit of what's taking place on your district? Sure. Uh, Jeff, one of the passions of my heart has been helping church planners, and it's a long story, but uh, after uh, uh, being a... <laughs> failure at church planting back in the early years, I, uh, I said, man, if I could ever help other people win at this thing, I'd sure love to figure it out. And uh, God's really given us some opportunities to, to be an encouragement to church planters. When I was at Kingswood, I uh, had never expected to be there, but was glad to serve them for those five years. But my heart really was serving more directly alongside local church leaders. And so the door opened uh, Dr. Joanne Lyon invited us to come out and interview with the team. What was then Indiana Central District, a year later merged with Indiana North District and became the Crossroads District. So we start from the south side of Indianapolis, go to the Michigan border, up to the sandy shores of Lake Michigan, and from Illinois over to Ohio. Uh, 108 churches of all sizes and shapes, everything from Burmese churches to hip-hop churches. And uh, it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And by the grace of God, we're going to be planning a lot more. There's three million people in the state of Indiana with no relationship with Jesus Christ or his church. Uh, hard to believe here in the middle of America and the Bible Belt, but absolutely true. And uh, we're seeing God do some beautiful things in, in revitalizing existing churches and in the planting of new churches. That's really exciting. And uh, in your free time, I say that tongue in cheek, but you also wrote a book. This is over the last few years, Lead Like Wesley. Now, obviously, Wesleyan's John Wesley, but was there a greater affinity or a call to write a book or were you just researching the life of John Wesley and that kind of led into the writing of your book? Yeah, uh, Jeff, people you know, probably say the same to you and you, you've written what? One, two, three, how many now? Uh, zero. I've oh, not well. written. I've not written. But, so. but people like me will say, Jeff, you should write something. Well, they'd say that <laughs> yes. to me. I'm like, I've got nothing to say that hasn't already been said. So I'm like, why would I do that? And uh, I, Early on in my 20s, as I was going through the ordination process in the Wesleyan Church, I came across what's called special advice to ministers. It's a little section in the discipline, and it had these 10 guidelines, and it had this uh, unusual introduction. It said, 
Wesley's uh, helps for leaders have seldom been excelled for their leadership to counsel or advice. I'm like, really, really? And uh, the one that, that rocked my world or, or, or at least disturbed my world uh, was number 10, which said you have nothing to do but save souls or win souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work and go not only to those who want you most, but to those who need you most. And uh, I thought, nothing to do but i've got plenty of things to do i got sermons to prepare i got board meetings to go to i've got people to visit in the hospital i got i was even mowing the grass right i got lots of stuff to do and that yeah i couldn't shake it um so over the years i i went back and reflected on those 10 lessons that are there in our discipline and thought well as i read biographies of wesley i could see illustrations here and there as i read through his journals on occasion and then became much more intentional about it as I moved into the project. Uh, I just began to look to say, where did Wesley himself flesh out those principles? Did he live them or just teach them, right? And uh, to see the illustrations over and over again of how he lived those out. It's pretty fascinating, Jeff, if you think about it, he had an organization with over 100,000 people uh, who were involved in small group ministry spread all over the British Isles, right? So that takes what? 10,000 volunteer leaders at a ratio of one to 10. And he had over 500 people on paid staff in a time with no cell phones, no email. He's managing and leading this organization. It's far flung across the aisles and eventually, of course, to America and elsewhere. How did he do it? And part of it was he established his core culture around these principles, rules of the helper, they're called. So uh, it was a delightful experience. I'll, I'll tell you sometime, I want to know how I used an Excel spreadsheet to write a book, but that's another story. Hey, Mark Orbet, making some time. He's the district superintendent at Crossroads District, crossroadsdistrict.org. Something that you shared in a pastor's meeting I attended is that based on your research, you could not find evidence that John Wesley made that comment, set yourself on fire, and people will come from miles to watch you burn. Could you just talk about some of the folklore that sometimes pastors have a tendency to exaggerate, but it was something that he lived by, or you could accredit it to. It would not surprise you if yeah. he did say it. What yeah, it's, it, it may well be possible that he said it and someone else wrote it down. Uh, there's not a listing of a contemporary that I could find who quoted him directly, uh, but shortly after his death, you start to see this appearing, this phrase. So whether he had said it or it was attributed to him, what I could prove, what I could de determine, at least, was that I could find it nowhere in the 14 volumes of Wesley's works that I had available both in hard copy and online to do searching on. So it's yeah, it's pretty easy for some of those things to kind of get legs a, a life of their own, you know, and run with it. But he clearly believed that. He, he, he did believe. Why are our people, he said, not more uh, warm-hearted toward God? He said, because we as leaders are not more warm-hearted. Or do our people not pray more? Because we do not pray more. So he clearly called for leadership by example, that the leaders needed to be white hot in their passion for God and that that would be in fact contagious. So it's easy to see how that was attributed to him. And what a reminder and convicting uh, for us as Christians, let alone leaders to uh, lead by example. Um, for myself, uh, pastoring here in Vermont, there's only two Wesleyan churches and half of our congregation, if not more, do not know what a Wesleyan is. Yeah. So I just want to start with the question, how and where did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in a Christian home? And when did you kind of mm -hmm. discover that you wanted to be a Wesleyan? Yeah. Well, I was a second generation Christian. My dad was the first um, born again believer in his family as a teenage boy. 
Uh, he came to know the Lord through the witness of a, a Baptist layman and then was invited to become part of the youth group and a church in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. Now, don't lose this. Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. He goes to the youth group there. The, he's loved and encouraged uh, by the pastor. Uh, since the call to ministry, he goes off to what was then Bethany Bible College down in Nova Scotia. It used to be in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Went there, uh, married this young lady, and the next year uh, they had a little boy. That was me, and they pastored up there. So I was born in uh, New Brunswick, Canada. My family's all from that area, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. And that time, those churches were called Reformed Baptist Churches of Canada. They were not reformed in the classical sense of reformed theologically. They were reorganized or a new expression of what was free will Baptist churches up there who were committed to the holiness message, to a spirit filled life. So I grew up in that. And it was in 1966 and seven that they merged with what was then the Wesley Methodist Church, which the next year, of course, merged with the Pilgrim Holiness Church. So the joke in towns where I was living up there in Canada is you don't know who you are because it's the third name you've had on your church in three years, right? <laughs> so it became the Wesleyan Church. And, uh, you know, dad was a pastor and I saw him live out his faith so authentically. He and mom, people of prayer, people of uh, passion, um, their, their gifts of hospitality, just the, the authentic Christian life that they lived was undeniable. And while I certainly, as most teenagers do, had doubts, and uh and and took some wandering paths i knew the the hand of god was certainly drawing me and uh it was a joy to surrender to christ and to begin to pursue his purpose for my life so i i was a wesleyan as uh, kind of by birth but through my college years i thought well the wesleyan church isn't perfect maybe there is a perfect church out there somewhere right so i literally visited every kind of church when i was in college from catholics to charismatics and Everywhere I went, there I was. I couldn't find a perfect church. Every place I went, I ruined it. So uh, by, by the time the search was over, I said, you know what? The Wesleyan Church may not be perfect, but it's certainly theologically for me. And in kind of the culture of the church, um, they're warm-hearted, evangelistic fervor. Um, I, I just really felt at home there. So I came back home. And so a question more specific to the last year, year and a half, two years, is I hope, my prayer is my children and my grandchildren will hear stories how I led well during a pandemic. But when yeah. you think about your father, and I do, I go way back to the Great Depression. You look at the world wars. You look at some of the difficulties that uh, other generations have to, had to process and just present the gospel. Was there a memory of a difficult time that you watched your father struggle through, but he did not lose his faith or sight of his calling during that time? You know, Jeff, there was a period I was really young. I probably was seven or eight. He had what in those days was called a nervous breakdown. They have different language for it these days, but uh, mental or emotional exhaustion and collapse um, had to be cared for. Uh, he was an evangelist at that time traveling. So there was a period of time when I didn't see him healthy, didn't see him flourishing, but I was never aware of a time even then when, I mean, things were, were tenuous. I mean, my mother had to go take a full-time job and it was disruption obviously in family life, but he never, never saw him turn his back on God. And there were some delightful times. Uh, you know, I, I think about, how God uh, led him to teach at, at Kingswood, Bethany Bible College then. 
he taught there when I was in junior high school, but he just couldn't shake the, the desire to go back and pastor local church. Doctors had not advised it given his health, but he just couldn't shake it. He said, God, if you'll give me the strength, I, I'll do it. And he said, well, t- let me go someplace where no one else will go. And so they had, I think, 12 or 13 candidates in a little town called Westchester, Nova Scotia. And everybody who would candidate, they asked him to come and they said, no, I don't think so. And so he was like the 12th or 13th, 14th candidate, whatever it was in the list. And they asked him to come. And uh, I'll never forget, I was very, I mean, I was in this journey of my faith, 15, 16 years old. And to see that church go from 40 or so people to 100 people in about 18 months, or it was just, we saw, I think, 250 people out for the Christmas program. There are only 250 people in town. I think we had 256 in church that night. But just to see God answer that faith-filled prayer in a difficult, you know, coming out of that difficult time for sure. So that, that brought a lot of hope and confidence to my heart, what God can do. Well, again, Mark Gorbett, uh, make some time. The uh, district superintendent, crossroadsdistrict.org, crossroadsdistrict.org. And I just want to talk about the infamous call to vocational ministry. I was told mm. when I went to college that if you can find anything else to do and get paid, go do that because ministry, vocational ministry, it's going to be the call that holds you sometimes. And serving as president at Kingswood and just being a pastor and leading pastors, can you just share what some people are scared of or nervous or have misinformation about that call of God to vocational ministry? Oh, Jeff, we've got how long tonight? <laughs> we have all night. The night <laughs> let me recommend <laughs> Keith. Let me recommend Keith Jury's book on the call. It's available on Amazon.com, and I'm sure Keith Jury in his retirement years would appreciate the royalties. Keith really explores the the different ways in which God called people in the Old and New Testament. I mean, there are some that are just like these clarion calls like Saul on Damascus Road. There are others like an emerging call for Timothy who's raised in this godly household and and senses a stirring of gifts and the prayers of elders and and, and that combination of things. So I, I don't know that there's one path forward. I do think that uh, in both the ordination process we currently have and even in Wesley's uh, journey with his lay ministers, uh, he looked for an abiding call, first of all. Can you shake it? Hmm. Is it just a thought in a moment, or is it like it just kind of is chasing you? It's pursuing you. You just sent, seem to get away from it. Uh, then it's not just are you sensing that, but do people around you affirm it? Do you see the affirmation of the church? And the church should be looking for that sense of call. Do you testify to that? But also, are there are there gifts for that? Uh, there are certain requirements in the equipping ministry of word and sacrament or Ephesians 4 ministry. There are things that you need to do. And it seems that God would either call somebody who has gifts that he's already given them or would certainly be entrusting those to them as they're on this journey. Uh, it would be a very frustrating thing to ask someone to be a piano player who couldn't play the piano or someone to be a singer who couldn't sing and to, to be called to a ministry of word and sacrament and not be able to communicate uh, that would be a, a real challenge. And then when you think of the, the qualifications that Paul lays out with Timothy and Titus, almost all of them have to do with character, except that ability to teach. And can you explain things? Can you make things clear? Can you defend the, uh, the, the faith of the handed down to us? And so that, that seems to be a non-negotiable. So if you can't clearly articulate the claims of Christ and defend the faith, um, that may not be what you're called to do because that's part of the equipping through the word. And then is there fruit for that? 
Um, you know, is there the grace of God at work? Is there is there the giftings for evidence? And then do we see fruit that remains? Is it a flash in the pan or do we see people really maturing and growing their faith as a result of your ministry? And that can be true. I mean, you don't have to have a five-year, you know, program or, or master divinity. Uh, people can can answer that call in various levels, but there is in the church visible, we have this expression of ordination and the, the, the testing process, the, the, the educational process, the interview process, all of those things are, are to help a person discover and develop that, their sense of God's calling in their life in that ministry. So I'm not sure that I answered the question, but I, I certainly went in circles around it somewhere there. So, yeah. Now, I have a question or a pondering. I'm wondering, with everything taking place, with the emergence or awareness of emotional health and uh, mental illness, I just wonder if there's going to be a revival of people called into vocational ministry. I understand work at workplace ministry, marketplace ministry is so key and so important. But how excited would you be to see more people called into vocational ministry? Or what are your thoughts on just that question that's just going around my head? Mm. Yeah, I think there's a great tension <laughs> and, and the pendulum seems to have swung in the church over the years back and forth. Clearly, I mean, we think the, the, the significant swing and the Protestant Reformation, the priesthood of all believers, which was an articulated position, but wasn't really actualized. You know, it was, it was articulated, but not actualized. But here we find, I think, uh, even more affirmation of that in this generation. And man, I, I just was yesterday at uh, College Wesleyan Church where Dr. Steve Deneff is celebrated 20th. 20 years of ministry there. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful celebration. But one of the things that, that God has really gripped Steve's heart with is this idea that his job on Sunday is to equip the ministers of the church for their ministry on Monday through Saturday. And he has on a given week about 30 some now lay people uh, who either work in marketplace settings or own companies who take the messages that he delivers on Sunday and he gives them a way to boil that down into a small discussion, conversation, and a prayer opportunity. And they're taking that into their workplaces every week. So uh, it's not either or, it's how do we find the best balance of those things. And uh, there may be a day that the church visible as we've known it, uh, you know, whether it's the buildings may be taxed or you know, your freedom to publicly assemble may be restricted, that the, the church goes underground and flourishes as it has in other places. So I think the future is bright for the church either way. But I think as, as we're able to, to see people who are gifted to teach the word, to equip the saints, um, and people who are willing to answer that calling, um, it's a high noble thing. You would know this, Jeff, about 50% of the pastors in our uh, church, at least, in our district at least, are bivocational. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's different uh, when West Michigan, as I recall, I think maybe out of the 50 churches when I first got there, there were probably five or six pastors who were bivocational. So maybe just a little over 10 percent. So it's been a, a, a wonderful challenge here because we have a range of pastors, some of whom uh, are fully bivocational, fully like co-vocational. Yeah. I've got a pastor who has a wonderful business um, that he's developed and does very well with that financially. He also has music giftings. I was a jazz uh, bass guitar player and has recorded music and pastors this inner city church from which he's never taken an offering in 10 years, never taken a paycheck. And yet they have this most profound ministry, uh, you know, caring for kids and feeding 
the poor and discipling people. Um, so, man, I, I celebrate what, what Chuck is doing. But then again, as I'm with Dr. Deneff, I mean, he spend, he has a staff team around him and he's able to spend 20 plus hours a week preparing messages. I mean, he speaks with such precision and clarity and empowers a whole church of people to go out then and share that message. So, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the kingdom's advancing and God's going to use different expressions in different places. I think our thing is just to be responsive, both individually to what's God asking you to do, Jeff, what's he asking me to do. And then as a church to receive those gifts as God raises them up. I, I said it earlier, but I, I probably say it at least once a day to our team. It takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And it's going to take all kinds of leaders to lead all kinds of churches. So let's recognize the hand of God. And whether that's a house church, we've got four of those going on. Whether it's a supper church, we've got a couple of those. Whether it's a, a, in the prison church, we've got one of those. Whether, as I said, the hip hop church or Burmese church uh, or a church for uh, Venezuelan refugees, whatever it takes uh, to reach and make more and better disciples, then let's just go for it. Let's do it. Oh, I agree with that. Again, Mark Corvette, District Superintendent of the Crossroad District, crossroaddistrict.org uh, of the Westland denomination of which uh, Living Hope is a part of. If you're not familiar, go to westland.org and find more information uh, about us, who we are as uh, the family of God. But Mark, I have a question and I just saw it recently again, and maybe you could speak to this. Um, when I went to Bible college, uh, there were those called into ministry and they just struggled, floundered, or they really felt the sense of God's calling on their lives. And then I've seen in vocational ministry over the years, people that know they're called, but for whatever the reason, they allow Satan's temptation to turn into their sin. And they have left their family for whether moral failures or whatever the case might be. How... How did you try to communicate the importance of integrity, character, commitment, loyalty while you were president at Kingswood from seeing pastors from your previous roles and knowing uh, some of the temptations that, that could happen to young idealistic minds of kids just pursuing Jesus? But the life of a church, of a minister has all sorts of pitfalls if we don't surrender to Jesus. Yeah. Well, I'd have to just say, Jeff, that moral failure in a pastoral leader is one of the most devastating things, not just in the life of that family. And it, it obviously wrecks a family. It uh, wrecks two families in many cases. Uh, it's, it's devastating to that local church. I've, I've worked with churches where it's been years later and they still have difficulty trusting anyone in leadership. Uh, and it's devastating to communities. We have pastors who even 15, 20 years after some moral failure come into a community to pastor and a church and, and people whisper or they actually have the conversation with the pastor. Oh, I'm sorry, you're down at that church. You know what happened there, don't you? And, mm -hmm. and that memory institution, you know, kind of community memory lingers long. So it's and it's devastating. And uh Paul certainly in, in the, his pastoral epistles is calling for the highest level of integrity among pastors and ministers. Most of the time, people don't have good mechanisms for it, though. While they would believe for it, they don't always put in place the things that could help not nourish that, foster that. And that could be everything from their own personal spiritual disciplines, the practice of those disciplines. It can be having a, a good leadership team around you that is willing to Know, provide checks and balances so that you don't go off doing your own thing in the, in the organizational structure. But 
probably even more important is just that personal accountability. And um, I, I, again, learning, trying to learn from John Wesley, uh, he practiced that high level accountability from his college years on in what they called bands, B-A-N-D-S, not rock bands, but small group bands, bands of people who gathered together to really ask each other hard questions. And uh, that, that accountability and that formational experience uh, was significant, both in preparing them for what they would encounter, but also in helping them to deal with it when it came. And then if in fact they fell to help them in, in the restoration process of that. So for us, when I was at the, at the University of Kingswood, we started bands there. We, uh, I was part of a band, my uh, CFO and my academic dean and I, the three of us met on Thursdays or over the lunch hour for accountability and did that for the five years I was there. Um, I've since, of course, moved to Indiana, a little hard to meet with the CFO, but the academic dean moved back to teach here in Indiana Wesleyan. And so after the first year where I got back here since 2016, we've been able to continue that. We do that on Mondays today, actually, at four o'clock and uh, spent that time just asking some key questions that we think help us, keep us focused, keep us on balance for what God's called us to be and do. So, Jeff, I, I think, yeah, there, there is that personal, you just have to own it, right? You, accountability groups are no good if you're not willing to be honest in them. So it starts yeah. with me in my personal spiritual disciplines. Do I, do I make the reading of scripture and, and the prayer? Do I make that the priority that God wants it to be? Um, do I have a good organizational structure? I, it's one of the reasons I like the Wesleyan Church. I love the fact that there's accountability up and down at multiple levels. Like we don't have bishops for life. Our general superintendent will be voted on at the next general conference. I will be voted on at the next district conference. Pastors could be voted on. There's this accountability built in up and down. I, I love that. I think I flourish well in that. Um, so there's an organizational context, but then I think that interpersonal relationship, that, that accountability group or one-on-one, or -on -one, whatever works best for you. And Dr. Wayne Schmidt, our general superintendent, has modeled that so well. You probably know his story with Paul Anthes over 30 years now that they've been in accountability, very deep and transparent accountability for years and years and years. So those would be the things I, I did. First of all, just be aware of the, the consequences, man, it's devastating to not protect your heart. Um, but then what are the practices? Can you establish and build those rhythms in your life that do sustain you through those difficult times? That's so true and uh, really uh, good. And thank you for answering. I just want to press in a little bit more to a specific question. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and some of the things that took place there. And I think that there's this tendency, at least in recent days, to be so vulnerable that we will share everything we're going through, but we're almost so nice that we don't hold people accountable. Can you talk about how we can be vulnerable, but there must be a need for accountability as well? Mm. Can I talk about it? Uh, I can talk about it. Yeah, let's see. I don't I don't know how do you strike the perfect balance, but I think it is you have this. You know, if sin is being tolerated and people are disobedient to the word of God, then that's this. It's not whatever you think you're doing. It's not working. <laughs> so try something else. Right? That, um, and, and vulnerability. Um, like I, I, I have not listened to the series, but the uh, some of the earlier uh, messages I might have heard from Marcel. I mean, there was this kind of raw, like whatever, just let it all hang out there. And I think there's there's appropriate authenticity. I think there's also discretion. Um, 
So trying to figure out how to walk that line in terms of your public pulpit ministry, but then behind the scenes, uh, Chuck Swindoll was a great example of somebody who very appropriately would share about struggles as he processed through them and worked through them and would talk about how he did that. He did that with his small group who asked him hard questions, who were there, who challenged him. Uh, Chuck, you were speeding, you know that, right? You came flying by, <laughs> whatever, the speed zone. Uh, uh, Craig Rochelle, I think, recently told a similar kind of incident about cutting someone off in traffic. And he'd just preached the day before about how we need to show the, the fruit of the spirit in every situation. And little kid in the car sees him cutting him off and, you know, cutting around. And so I think, you know, finding that that balance. Um, we do live in a, an era that sensationalism and uh, it just seems to be a hunger for that kind of a tabloid pulpit. And I, I don't. I don't know that God's honored with that, but Paul could appropriately say, I'm the chiefest of all sinners. Yeah. He didn't have to give him every detail, but like, I need God's grace as much as anybody in this room, probably more than most of you. <laughs> you can go there. Right. But um, yeah. That's so, good. Yeah. Um, our pastor said that uh, when he left the church and he left from vocational ministry and a positive to take on a different ministry assignment, but he said, he was so proud that his wife still loved him and his kids, his children still loved the local church. Yeah. From all reports, that's been your story and your example. How have you been able to do that where your life, wife loves you and your kids still love the local church? Well, my wife just walked in the door. We could ask her, Jeff. <laughs> she, just got, she just got home from a church board meeting, so we could ask her. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the being real about your own commitment and your own desire to follow God. As I said, I saw that lived out by my folks, my own parents. Uh, so trying to be uh, authentic and real with your own kids and not, nothing, a teenager, nothing turns a teenager off faster than hypocrisy, right? So don't claim to be something that you're not. And, uh, and they're going to see you. They're going to do more of what you do than what you say. Um, one of the things that we tried to do, and I think God blessed, is that we, Sherry and I, were pretty intentional about getting our young people, especially in the teen years, around passionate Christians. Hmm. So, for example, uh, we were involved at Kentwood Community Church when I was the district superintendent there. That was the first time my children didn't have me for a pastor. I was now the DS, right, the, the year before there. Uh, so they had Pastor Wayne, and they had Jeff Eckert as a youth pastor. I mean, just saw some wonderful examples of passionate Christ followers. And then as we started working with church planters, they would come with us, even helping out. You may know Chad McCollum, who's up at Hayward now, but when Chad was planning a church, my boys were his praise band. And I think at the time they were like ninth grade, seventh grade, and fifth grade, something like that. Like my fifth grade son was playing drums and couldn't see over the drum shield. <laughs> right? But they, they knew that there was a place for them, that they were valued. They were around people who were passionate about their faith and who were taking risks. For the gospel so in 2005 when we were invited to move to azerbaijan to serve there with world hope i know we, we sat there and said what's this going to cost us what will this mean and and yet the the opportunity for our children to see other people living their faith out too in, in a muslim community in that case uh was powerful so as we got to sit with the world hope team you know week by week by week those young adults some several of them that you may know from kingswood who were there at the time uh, it was just uh, an environment where our our, our children saw authentic faith, passionate faith being lived out, 
And so it's a joy today to say that I've got a son who's 30 and he and his wife pastor a church called Center Church. I've got a 28-year-old son and his wife. They He leads worship at a church called Harvest Church, a Wesleyan church in Greenfield, Indiana. And then I've got a son, Joel, who's 26 years old, and he's the uh, First Steps Connections Executive Pastor, some title, I don't know, they come up with all these new titles, at uh, Journey Church, which was a church that started in our living room while we were still there in Michigan. And my daughter is the digital marketing manager for Tony Morgan's Unstuck Group that consults with churches all over America. So uh, again, we, we say the way to be a great parent is to have God give you really wonderful kids. So we just believe we were blessed with amazing children. We tried not to mess them up too much, but it's a joy to see them follow Jesus. Well, Mark and uh, Mark Gorbett, crossroadsdistrict.org. I'll just click on that once more, crossroadsdistrict.org. And um, I would just ask if you could share what has been the biggest challenge for you to encourage or support your local pastors on your district this past year or two years? Oh, Jeff, the, uh, certainly the pandemic has, has been, uh, what are all those words you use? Unprecedented. I think I heard someone say that one time, <laughs> something like that. Uh, to, to help pastors. I think one thing, Jeff, was to, to work on changing the scorecard. Hmm. Uh, I think it was really easy, and, and particularly in a denominational setting where you measure almost everything, you report statistics, you know, annually, that really easy to make those things the scorecard, and yet to think about what it means to be faithful in your own personal spiritual disciplines, what it means to, if you can't leave your house, what's it mean to, to shepherd well your, your house church and to provide creative responses to your own community, to your neighbors. Um, so helping think about are the people not just gathering but the people that you equipped are they being sent are they feeling empowered for ministry outside the four walls and i think it was disconcerting hmm. i think it was disconcerting to many of us how ill-equipped our people were to both minister in their own homes and to minister to their neighbors without the without the formal gathering that they become dependent on and I, I hope that's a takeaway uh, from this experience that we'll, we'll focus better on that. But yeah, helping change a scorecard, uh, trying to challenge them that it was not going to be a sprint. I mean, all the news reports initially were in two weeks. <laughs> we'll get this thing tackled in two weeks. Typical American mindset, right? We'll, we'll fix it in two weeks. And here we are two years later, right? Um, but uh, I think that sense of just this could be a long, long journey. Let's just prepare and let's, let's support and encourage one another. Uh, in a time when pastors were being hit in every direction, you got to do this, you got to do that. We may have, maybe we didn't handle it well. Uh, as I looked at it, I thought it was the right thing to do is we encourage pastors to be discerning about their local situations because we have everything from cities to very remote situations like you'd understand. Um, and what worked in Indianapolis didn't necessarily work you know, in uh, in Fowler, which has more windmills than people on the prairie out there. Um, so to give them flexibility, say, we, we support you. You make the decision that's best for your church, given the information you have, your local health officials, you as a leadership team, pray about it, you decide, and we're going to support whatever you decide. And so there were sometimes I think people wanted me just to decide for them and tell everybody we're all going to do the same thing. <laughs> then they could all be mad at somebody who doesn't go there. 
Uh, but one size doesn't fit all. So we, we did that. And I think just, again, tried to make them feel empowered. There were so many forces taking things away that we tried to figure out ways to bless them. So I, I really appreciate the way our leadership team responded early on. Um, a district board came up with some funding even for, we did a $500 grant just for families. Look, you may have some special needs or some extraordinary circumstances. This is use it any way you need to. If you need to take a trip or buy a, a video game or whatever, I, we don't care. You do what works for your family, but this is just for you to tell you we love you. We want to be there for you. We also did a thousand um, dollar property grant because they weren't in the building, weren't able to use it, but it was still sitting there. Had to be heated, had to be insured, and so we uh, we did that. And then we also did a thousand dollar technology grant because many of our churches were not online, not doing anything. And I think that tangible way, I felt a little bit like Joseph. We'd stored up some some, some grain in the in the seasons when it was more plentiful and we had an opportunity to release it and bless people in a time of need and i think that that practical consideration seemed to be helpful as well so those are some ways that we tried to do it that's amazing uh two questions and then we'll get you out thank you so much for being generous oh, with your great. time again mark gorvet and uh the living legend from everything i've heard it's uh it's true, and just sincerely, by your life of integrity, your good reputation. Uh, we just finished preaching through Hebrews, and now I'm preaching through Colossians. In uh, Colossians, it talks about Colossians 3.3, 3, now we are hidden with Christ in God. For me, and I'm 46, and I feel like I'm behind the eight ball, and I should be so far ahead, or the church should be this size, or this should be my reputation, but for whatever reason, I'm not there yet. So I'm learning to be content, hidden with Christ in God. How, when did you learn the importance of not being seen, but just knowing that you were hidden with Christ in God? Mm. Oh boy, Jeff, that's a, I think that's an ongoing journey. I wouldn't say you ever just kind of mastered that. Um, but I, I do recall we went through a season um, when I was working for the University of Alabama. And uh, for a number of reasons, we just felt that was the right thing to do for that season. Uh, we were doing some work with churches on weekends, but I wasn't pastoring a church. And then as we sensed, okay, it's time to step back into local church ministry. I just assumed that people would want us to come help them. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> and uh, wow, it was like, okay, uh, you know, we're ready. Coach, put us in the game, right? Here we go. And no. No, no. And, and that season of waiting when nobody, nobody really wanted you. And then getting a phone call from a, a district superintendent out of what was then called the Dakota District. We were living in Birmingham, Alabama. So Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama is on the Gulf Coast and North Dakota is on the Canadian border. Right. We just had our first baby. It was the first grandchild on our on my wife's side of the family. And we lived just a few hours from her folks. And they thought that we would move to North Dakota to pastor church. Really? <laughs> and there was this, uh, we, we went out, the, the people were amazing. Uh, people like Warren Joetta Coase are just some amazing people we got to work with. But we came back home with this sense that God's going to do something uh, really wonderful in that out of the way place. And we can be part of it. Uh, the door was open to us, but God was going to do it with or without us. <laughs> We decided we didn't want to miss out on it. So we packed everything up in a U-Haul truck and drove those, whatever it was, I can't remember, 1,400, 1,800 miles 
uh, out there to the prairies and felt like we'd fallen off the edge of the earth. It wasn't the end of the earth, they said, but if you stand up pop can, you can see it from here. So it was, like, <laughs> it was out there. And yet to, to just to just to fall in love with the people and say, God, whatever you want to do, do it. And to see the beautiful work that he did in those years. Our church, uh, a wonderful name called Hope, New Hope Church in Williston, North Dakota. And that season grew from just under 150 people to over 500 in worship, you know, the last few weeks that we were there. And God just did some beautiful things and raised up church planners and uh, healed marriages. And we got to be part of it. It was out of the way. Like, And I, I literally thought, we moved to North Dakota. That's the end of it. No one will ever hear from us again. And uh, and God has just this great sense of humor because it was from North Dakota um, that I was invited to become the district superintendent of Wisconsin. And from Wisconsin, invited to go to West Michigan because we were in West Michigan and God did some unusual things there that the university reached out to us and said, would you come help us there? And and now we get to serve here in these wonderful with these wonderful folks in the cornfields of Indiana. And so uh, God knows what he's doing, right? Just, uh, Trust him. And again, Mark Orbeck, crossroadsdistrict.org, crossroadsdistrict.org, where he serves the Wesleyan Church, the Wesleyan denomination as district superintendent there. The final question is maybe a tricky one, but I'm here in Vermont, so the Northeast, the big, bad, ugly, cold to the gospel Northeast. But I remember going to college in New Brunswick, Canada. I have some great friends that are in Canada that seem to be more liberal than a lot of parts within the United States, and their churches are growing, and their Christians are living out the gospel. When you hear people complain about a certain direction that the Americanized church is going, what can you bring to attention from what you got to experience from being in Canada that might be slightly ahead of us in some ways as far as being more liberal? What, what advice would you give to some pastors here in Vermont that would say it's too hard, it's too dark when there's pastors in Canada that have not only lived through it, but they've thrived because of some of this, quote, persecution? Yeah, I think the, the thing I'd encourage us with, Jeff, is that the cross will always be offensive. So we, we're never going to get away from that. Cross will always be offensive. The fact that we were so sinful that Christ had to die for us to literally save us from ourselves. Like that's always going to be offensive and a, I can do it on my own society. So that, that part you'll never shake, but we can easily get diverted into tangential issues, right? We can find ourselves chasing proverbial rabbits and, and jumping on hobby horses or, or chasing after particular causes. And I think the thing I would say both there in Canada and maybe even more so in Azerbaijan in a Muslim, country where there were churches that were registered and were public is that they just focused on Jesus. The, the cross is offensive and Jesus is amazing. And um, you, you don't, you don't, you don't uh, move, remove the offense of the cross, but man, when people learn who Jesus is and what he wants to do, how he'd love to set them free and the purpose he has for their lives, I think churches that focus on that and don't get caught up, whether it's in, again, tangential issues or politics or whatever it might be, um, lift high Jesus and uh, and trust him with the results. That is so good. Mark, uh, thank you again for your time. And that was the last question, but like a good pastor, I do have a second conclusion. 
And that's simply, would you just pray for us here in Vermont as we desire to love Jesus and live Jesus as his faithful disciples making disciples? I'd be glad to do that, yes. Lord, thank you for this time just to connect with a brother in Christ, a man who loves you and who's been walking by faith. And we do pray, Lord, your blessing on his family. You know, Lord, uh, the things that they carry in their hearts today. And we pray for that beautiful part of the country. Uh, I think of so many times driving through Vermont, coming down from New Brunswick or heading back home, and we drive through there, and just the beauty of that area. And yet, Lord, the spiritual need. There have been revivals in the past, and there's no reason you can't do that again. And Lord, the call to make disciples is always compelling. And so whether it's new ways or new language, whatever it takes, or may we uh, not never remove the offense of the cross, but may we always find ways to lift Jesus high. So I pray for my brothers and sisters who lead the churches in Vermont. Would you, Lord, in a special way, bless them. May they, in fact, lead us. May we learn from them as they are creative and effective in reaching men, women, boys, and girls for Jesus. As they make disciples, who make disciples there in Vermont, Lord, I pray that you do something so unique, so special. Glorify yourself there. And Lord, may it be contagious. Uh, we would pray, would you please revive America again? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, Mark. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best. And uh, thanks again for making the time tonight. Absolutely. And I'll look forward to chatting with you after we're done. Definitely. Again, that's uh, Mark Gorvet. You can find information at crossroadsdistrict.org, crossroadsdistrict.org. My name is Jeff Fuller, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, hopefulvermont.org. And we are for you because Jesus was and we want to be like Jesus. Thanks, everybody.